Sound Design Live. We're in Austin, Texas. This Welcome. is Sound Design Live. I'm here with Roy Taylor. My name is Nathan Lively. I met Roy working in theater in Austin. He is the, I guess we can call him the in-house sound designer at Vortex Theater. He does most of their shows, and you've been doing that for a few years. But you also do live sound, you do recording. Um, your main gig, I guess, is touring with uh, Patty Griffin. That's right. And um, uh, maybe you could talk for a few minutes about how you got into the industry and what you did before today. Uh, how I got in was, I guess, well, as a kid, I, I, I loved recording. I got a reel-to-reel tape recorder when I was a kid and was always into interested in the, the, the side of music that started manipulating the tape as a, early on and then kind of went to film school and started playing music and then got into bands. And it would always be a trade. You know, you'd, you'd help your friend's band get their sound together and then they'd help you, you know, because a lot of clubs and stuff didn't even have sound guys back this isn't like in the late seventies, I guess eighties. Well, in Austin, a lot of clubs still don't have sound guys. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of places, and so so it was sort of like that. Like, how does this work? And you know, you just get your hands on the stuff and figure it all out and help your friends. And um, at one point, this this when I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, one of those friends was a guy named Pat McDonald who had a band at the time called Pat McDonald and the Essentials, um, and gradually they got bigger and bigger and he was at a point able to hire me to go on little road trips and around the midwest to do sound for them um so i was kind of doing that they left town and i was running a bar which usually involved booking the bands bartending and running sound and that was sort of the the punk rock circuit place so you know i'd see touring bands come in and see their engineers and meet them and talk to them um then pat at that had ended up moving to Austin and he and his wife got a band together called Tim Buck three and they got a record deal and it was January and I was in Wisconsin and they were in Texas and Pat called up and said, do you want to come down and help us out while we go to LA and make this record? And since the temperature was nine degrees, I said, (laughs) sure. (laughs) So, so I ended up Coming down here, sleeping on their couch, getting ready to go to L.A., make the record, made the record, became their babysitter, became their manager. Wow. Um, babysitter to manager. Babysitter to manager, and all the time through that, mixing sound for them. So, so just that was, that was sort of the steep learning curve at that point. You know, suddenly here's a band, we're going on tour, we're in London, we're doing shows, and, and I, I just... You had never done managing before then. I had never done managing before then. The record company at the time was IRS Records, which is uh, owned by Miles Copeland. And um, so he he became our mentor. He he was the guy I could call and say, what do I do about this? You know, so he couldn't manage the band or, you know, they didn't want him to managing the band because it would be a conflict of interest of him being on both sides, management and the record label. Um, so I was sort of the, the buffer in between, which became fun. I got to argue with Miles Copeland. Nice. So, yeah. But, uh, but that, that sort of led me into the sound and, and business side of, of this and also exposed me to production most for the, for the kind of the second time actually, because 
playing in the bands in Madison, I was also able, stroke of luck, to be able to work in a little eight-track studio with a producer, um, a studio owner at the time, Butch Vig, who sure. after that went on to produce Nevermind from Nirvana and, <laughs> and uh, Sonic Youth and Soul Asylum and Garbage, plays drums with Garbage. Um, so, so that was another, it was like, he was just learning at the time, little Allen and Heath board and a eight track, uh, I can't remember. It was an eight track half inch okay. machine. Um, that was the foundation of the original smart studios. So can I assume that then that just sort of escalated and you got more and more jobs working with bands in general? Pretty much just okay. kept, you know, I, I mean, at a certain point, this is, I guess the, the whole Timbuk threes thing was happening at about the time I was 29 years old, turning 30 and, and going through that you know, the, the personal thing of like, what am I going to do? Am I, you know, is this is play? What, what's my real life going to be? Now I'm an adult. And, 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 and it just hit me as like, this is what real life is going to be. This is what I do. And, and, and I, and I think then something hit me and it's still kind of the mantra since is that it's one project to the next. Your, your job isn't going to, your, your job necessarily isn't going to be your job forever. This isn't like working at, you know, Monsanto or something. This is, this is, you know, what you do is going to change and, and the opportunities are going to keep changing and, and just follow it, follow that path. You're not just waiting by the phone all the time. You know, you are working to find clients. And you're right. The way that the jobs come about, it's, you know, it's partially social and, and, you know, knowing this person who knows that person. And, and it's partially, partially to me, it seems like engineering fate. You're, 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 you're putting yourself into the situations where you're going to connect with other jobs and other, you know, whatever, just streams of talent, um, uh, in, kind of latching into the touring thing that I've done since the Timbuk three. And that, that was even like you work for this band and then that band plays with this band and they see you and you know, while well, your band's wrapping up a tour, that next band's starting a tour. So you, you jump from one place to the other, or they have a common management and festivals are, are a really good one. You know, a lot of bands under one roof and, you know, talking to each other. Even after you have been working in the industry for years, like you have, uh, a lot of it is still uh, getting jobs is still just about timing. Like you happen to be touring, you happen to be on someone's radar when they need you, you know, yeah. the guy, the manager's not going through a list of resumes to find a front of house mixer. He heard about you recently, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I know that there's been, especially in the internet era, the last 10 years, I guess, <clears throat> there's been more clearing houses or situations where you can post resumes and stuff, but I don't know that, I mean, I imagine there's some success within that world, but I, I've not, I've not had to even go there. And it always seems like every time it's time to, when, when either a tour falls apart or something ends up and you don't know what's next, it seems like every time I've, I personally have had the situation of like, oh man, I'm going to have to start sending my resume out and look for a job. Somebody calls me yeah. <laughs> or something, the next thing happens. So, so it, and, you know, I'm part of that, like I said, it's socially, it's part of it is being the person people want to work with. It's right. it, beyond your technical means or abilities and, and what you can bring to their project creatively. It's also 
being the person that they're going to live on a bus with for two months. You know, it, that's as much a part of this, uh, the touring job. And, and I guess even in the sound design world, it's, it's like, who, who, who do you want to, you're going to spend a lot of time with this person. <laughs> so, so yeah, you have to be able to get along and your personalities have to match at a certain level. Right. But have you done anything actively to network with these kind of, with clients or with, with people that you hope will then recommend you? Um, the only time I ever was in a situation where I actively pursued a job, I, I was out of work for a little while and sent resumes to people that I, management, mostly people that had worked with artists that I worked with and sort of had them shot, you know, if you know somebody, you know, pass my information along. And the gig that came out of that one time, uh, out of a sort of a blind fishing for a job thing like that, is the worst gig I've ever had. How did you start working in theater? Was that in Austin, and was that just at the Vortex, and um, was that just serendipity? What happened? It was, it was a little bit of serendipity. Um, I had been the resident sound engineer for a small um, house here called the uh, One World Theater that was doing um, mostly concerts and occasionally dance performances. Um, ballet and, and classical and so so ba basically I was there as the resident sound engineer for touring artists that would come in and play shows um, there was a two-week residency for a dance theater uh, company called the Jose Greco flamenco dance company that came in that, that was partially live music they had flamenco guitarists and percussionists um, and then a, a troupe of dancers and needed the floor mic'd and, you know, to do flamenco. Though it was a small room still, it, it was some reinforcement needed for that. And it went well, and I um, sort of hit it off with the company leader, Jose, and the resident light designer was a, a, a guy named uh, Jason Amato, right. who's an award-winning lighting designer in here in Austin as well. And um, we became friends, Jason and I, and the Greco company had a tour coming up. So they asked me to go on the road and do, you know, just a smattering of dates, some, uh, uh, which included some dates in Taiwan and Florida. It was flying around. Taiwan basically. and Florida. Yeah. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good routing right. <laughs> and, and doing, um, uh, concerts and theaters, Mike in the floor, Mike and the musicians, that kind of thing. Um, and Jason and I, you know, just spent a lot of time together cause we were, in some of these cases, the only English speaking members of the company. Ah. So we ate together a lot and he, he would tell me of the theater experiences he had. And he just said, you know, have you ever tried doing a theater production? And I was like, well, no, I, you know, not since really high school, I, you know, was always part of the running the spotlight or helping build sets or something in high school theater, but never had really done anything like that. Mm -hmm. I had done some film work and, and, but even that wasn't really necessarily in the audio department. And um, so I said, yeah, try it out. And, and he said, well, I work with a very sort of left field experimental company called Vortex in Austin, um, a director named Bonnie Cullum. 
And um, we have, they have a show coming up that's kind of a rock opera. So maybe your live sound experience would be a good thing for them because they've always sort of had a little trouble reining it in in a small space and making it, you know, work. So, so I did, I, I came in and did that project. Um, I what can't year was that? I can't remember what show. It, uh, well, it would, it, it, I think this is my going into my 10th year working wow. with Vortex. So it was almost 10 years ago. And that sounds like it's been kind of a reoccurring theme in your work. And we were talking about that a little bit earlier, flying by the seat of your pants. I've kept that sort of whatever, the wide eyed innocence of how am I going to do this? And I'll, you know, I'll look on the internet. I'll, you know, look up how do people do it. And you'll look at some message boards and get some ideas. But at the end of the day, it's like, Two things. One, one is, a, I always remember a quote by um, Orson Welles that said, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. So especially in this little theater group, it's like you have what you're going to have. You know, it might be a six channel mixer and it, you know, it might be, you know, this microphone and this microphone and this amount of wires and, and a budget of $75. And here you go. So you, you figure out how to do it. And it's not always like, how is the best way to do it is how can I do it? Um, that's what I, 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 I think I've learned a lot of things through that, that maybe I wouldn't have learned if I had gone, Oh, you do that. And it's going to cost 600 bucks or it's going to cost this to rent this. And, you know, it's like, well, how can I do it with what I have? Um, you know, and, and, and I've just accumulated the arsenal of little, toys and things that I tend to like, but they're not necessarily the traditional things used in theater. Um, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm using a lot of shotgun mics now, which everybody goes, well, isn't there comb filtering and phasing and stuff? And I was like, I don't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> comb what? It seems like it's working. I don't know. I put it through different sound sources and sometimes you can get away with it. Um, the the 5.1 thing, I was working with Patty Griffin. We taped uh, a the Austin City Limits television show. Um, uh, Buddy Miller, who was part of the band and the producer of the record that was being performed, um, was asked to, to do the mix and didn't have time because of other projects and stuff. And so he recommended me. He said, I, you know, well, Roy can do it. And, and you thought... Um, how do you do that? Yeah, and I, I and I was like, okay, great. Well, it's in five point one. I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, so I read my articles and tried to figure out like what what do I need to know about this? But and how got, to do it on your home studio? And how to do it at home? Yeah. So I got the files and stuff. But what in the end it, it turned out actually that they don't really do the mix in five point one in in whole they they basically do the music mix in a stereo mix and then use the room mics that were recorded at the same time as the multi-tracked audio from the show um and basically bring a 5.1 image that you're sitting in a seat in the middle of the theater by using these microphones so 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 basically i brought the files home mixed it at home on a stereo took it in to the 5.1 and worked with David Hoff, their uh, house engineer, and um, created the rest of the mix with him. I want to talk about um, limits and sourcing equipment a little bit since you, since you mentioned that. And I, this is one of the most challenging things for me. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's back to that Orson Welles thing. I mean, the enemy of art, the absence of limitations. You, his example with that, and, and this is a film example but it applies to sound is 
um, if you, if you have a scene that is the supposed to be the um, uh, immigrants arriving at you know uh, Ellis Island, you know there's two ways you could shoot the scene. You could shoot the scene with a helicopter and and two thousand extras and an enormous set done in the period and, and a lot of costuming, which would cost you a lot of money. Or you could do it with a half a dozen or a dozen really good looking character actors with good costumes and a cyclone fence and get the emotion and of their faces and, and do it in a small intimate way. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, and it would cost a lot less money. And at the end of the day, potentially be more powerful, but you might not have thought that you would do it that way. If you had had the budget to get the helicopter and the, thousand extras and sometimes like in the case of music production it's sometimes what do you take away what you know is it more powerful sometimes for the instruments to drop out and leave the voice on its own rather than build up and you know use 20 cellos so so it, it it's it's it, it's the less is more thing and, and in the technical aspect and in the in the in that aspect it's it's just you're they're all tools that do lots of things. You know, whether it's a, you know, two six-channel boards strung together. Um, I'll do shows at Vortex where that's what that's what I've got to work mm-hmm. with. A couple of six-channel boards to work with, but but then I'll realize, well, wait, I've got now the facility to run two separate sound systems. So what if I run some speakers in the back and whatever I run? So I mean, it's led me to things that I wouldn't have thought of because had I just had you know, a, a, a digital board with a recall and, and all these things, I, you know, maybe I would have just done the traditional. Right. So it led me to things that I wouldn't have thought of. In the end, the audience watching it doesn't really care. They shouldn't notice. They shouldn't, they shouldn't know you're there. Right. They shouldn't know. In the show that's running right now, this show Air, um, they, I hope they don't even see the speakers. I hope they don't even realize that there's microphones. I want them to just immerse in this environment that they're in. Um, and I use a lot of reverb, but I want it to look like it's reverby because it's a big room, not because there's reverb. When you look up Roy Taylor online, one of the things you find out is about the B. Iden Payne Award, the Outstanding Sound Design. Yeah, I was surprised, honored to get an award for a show and I, I thought I'd done an okay job with it. Um, it was a challenging show. It was a really large cast and, and what was the show? The show was called Oceana. Right. Um, that was at the vortex at the vortex an original musical, um, content, uh, love Knowles was, uh, wrote the music and the, um, play was written by her and Bonnie Collum, the okay. director. And, um, it was an original musical, um, it's more traditional than maybe the the sort of rock opera things that a lot of Vortex things had done, but pushed the boundaries a little bit. Um, live band in um, was was on the stage uh, as part of the set, and um, a large cast. I think twenty twenty some people in the cast. So immediately the challenge became two challenges were 
well, this cast is entirely too large to, to use wireless mics um, on everyone that sings because it's huge um, expense. And you know, just the batteries alone would be probably as much as the costume budget. Um, so, so the other... And as part of the show, because it was a show about the, the ecological effects of, of um, um, you know, whatever, the degrading of the ocean's environment... Um, at one part of the show, there was to be a rainstorm, uh, quite a monsoon, um, which was going to be arranged with real water coming from the ceiling um, and drenching the actors and the stage. So no floor mics <laughs> and probably not any wireless <laughs> underneath that. I, I was in a situation where how do I zone mic this space to, to create you know enough reinforcement of sound when it was needed when the when the vocals were quieter with, with the group vocals it wasn't as much of an issue it's a fairly small room and, and a lot of people don't know vortex theater that's it's a challenge because it it's a small room the playing space is small and the audience is an l shape you can't really get the speakers that far away from the microphones so you you had to plan that pretty well, I guess, to, yeah. to get enough amplification before feedback right and and what I would usually do is use uh, some small speakers, some some little like almost cafe uh, uh, Bose style speakers hung uh, suspended from the ceiling to get them over the audience and away from the microphones as much as possible, and then use the larger speakers to uh, amplify um, sound, um, music mm-hmm. and things that need the lower frequencies. But the the small speakers would carry uh, voices pretty well, um, and I could also use situations like that with with rear speakers to to help fill out um some of the uh, immersion of the sound um so i had to mic this area using basically shotgun mics um and also something i came up with for that show and have actually used a lot since in both music and theater is mounting uh, uh pcc sure um crown pcc 160s to plexiglass plates um, for, to make boundary microphones. To make small boundary microphones um, that light can go through so that they can hi- be hung amongst the lights if you're hanging them up or as part of a set. Um, or in the case so of music... that's interesting. So lighting designers, lighting designers don't mind. It doesn't really affect their Yeah, it hasn't. Focus. They haven't gotten in the way of their lights if, if it was a problem. I've also used them in theater, and they were, they were on the Austin City Limits television show as um, the overhead mics for, huh. the, for the drum kit. Um, cameras could shoot right through. Nice. Um, they so they were hung from the ceiling. Now, it, one thing that created the happy accident that the joke is well, that's why you got the award was the lighting designer had to create the image of moving water as parts of the fill light had put um, like blue green lights through. Uh, little uh, large clear salad bowls with small fish tank pumps in them to create bubbles Mm -hmm. and and the illusion that the light was rippling and and going it was like like light coming through water because it was Mm -hmm. but the fish tank bubblers as i'm hanging the microphones up in this thing the lighting designer goes well don't don't put a mic too close to there you're going to pick up the bubbler and i was like Hmm. <laughs> Pick up the bubbler, up, you say. Why? Why is that a problem? 
So that actually in one of the comments in the review of, of the thing and, and from a lot of the people that saw the show was, that was great that you could hear the water. And you said, great, that was my plan all <laughs> that along. That was the plan all along. So, so, so thank you to Jason Amato for, for that Excellent great sound design. sound. Yeah, sometimes lighting and sound are at each other's throats, but in that case, we work together. helps us to get reviewed but you know how do you do that you know it's you're in a on a play the first things that get reviewed are the directing the writing the acting the scene design the lighting design and then maybe at the end somebody's going to say something about the sound yeah and in my experience i think i almost every time i've ever read anything about sound in a review it's negative and, and so I consider... So if they don't hear it, they exactly. don't say anything. If I, I, <laughs> I, I figure if the sound design is not mentioned in a review, it worked. It was great. Especially if the review is good. Especially if it says that the, the play... I mean, if it says the actor's emotion came across and that the songs were good or that the music you know, was good, that's a comment about the sound. You know? And the same thing in a concert situation. I was like, I don't really care that if... I, don't, I, I do care if people come up afterwards or you're standing at the board while people are filing out. And you know, a few people will say, that sounded good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I dread it when they come up and say, I couldn't hear this, you know. So, so I am more, whatever, not paranoid, but, but more concerned about the negative side of reviews than worrying about whether somebody's going to like it. For people who don't know, Patty Griffin is pretty well known on the country music circuit. And um, she is touring with Robert Plant coming up as part of his band. Well, first of all, how'd you get the gig? Um, it, in a typical fashion, I got the gig. Um, a friend uh, named Craig Ross, who I've done recording projects and live sound for for 20-some years, um, was playing a show at uh, Antone's here in Austin, called me up, asked me to mix it. And it was a simple little band with him and Brian Beattie from Glass Eye and another drummer, uh, John Green, and, and you know, just on the fly, and Craig's music's kind of quirky and crazy, so so it was like, yeah, let's plunge into this show doing an Antones, and I just, you know, it was a, another easy rock band to mix, and Patty was there. She's a friend of Craig's. He had worked on some rec- recording with her, and um, so she, after the show, came up to me and said, you know, have you, do you go on tour and do sound? It sounded really good. Um, and I know you're a friend of Craig's and stuff. And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I do that quite a bit. That's what I do. She goes, okay, well, that's great. I don't like to talk business in a bar, so you'll hear from my manager. <laughs> <laughs> so, and two weeks later, got the call and ended up, that was nine years ago. Been pretty much doing every tour since. Um, she's lovely to work with. She's a great boss. And the my favorite thing about that whole thing is her talent. She's not just limited to country. She's, she's, she can be a singer-songwriter. She can be a powerful gospel singer. She can be a rocker. And In fact, her last album, what's the title? Of the Downtown Church, okay. uh, Grammy award-winning um, contemporary gospel record, which she calls my, my lapsed Catholic gospel <laughs> record. Um, uh, she, Jesus wanted me to win. You came high. You came high, you came high because you don't know how. God's got your numbers and he knows where you live. 
and the experience of working with her has led to other uh, friendships and affiliations with other musicians and other work. Um, uh, Buddy Miller, in particular, uh, really inspirational as a producer and, and, and great brain to pick in respect to recording and, and working with musicians in the studio. Um, and most recently, Amy Lou Harris, getting to do a tour with her for the rest of this, this summer. Touring with Amy Lou Harris is going to be pretty similar, you think? Emmy is releasing a new record in, in April of, uh, um, of 011. Uh, and it will, um, it, it's an interesting record. She, she did it with uh, Jay Joyce as the producer, who um, is kind of a little more rock. And so it kind of goes back to the Emmy Lou territory that, of the record she did with Daniel Lanois uh, back in the 90s. Um, and but it was done with uh, some loops and some electronic instruments, uh, much apart from the sort of country thing. Though the songs still have that at their heart, um, but it was done live. It was recorded with the musicians playing those things in the studio together at the same time. Um, so so far uh, for the promotional tour that we've done uh, so far south by southwest and and in the next coming weeks we'll be in uh, new york los angeles um and the david letterman show doing it the same way with the same musicians performing the same way so mm-hmm. uh, giles reeves who's an engineer uh, sound designer and musician uh, plays keyboards and drums at the same time Whoa. and um the guitarist jay joyce plays guitar loops and bass pedals What's most important to you, technically, doing sound for bands like Emily Harris? The promoters will get us, for the most part, what we need. So I will take microphones. That's the one thing I, I won't basically do a tour without. Um, I will either buy or rent what I think I need, and then and it, through the first week or so of a tour you know, hone that in particular things that are my favorites or I'll have my sort of particular options that I'll like. Um, but, I, but I think it's a, it's a good part of consistency for me as a, as a, in, in the mix, that's the ear. That's the thing that's going to hear the instrument or the voice. And so being able to select and use what you think, what, what you want for that particular person's voice, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, if there's five singers on stage, I've, sometimes had three different kinds of microphones out there because mm-hmm. I don't care that they're mismatched. It's if it's right for their voice. And That's you've had, important. you've had, you said nine years now, right. To, to really hone this in and figure out what microphones work best for <laughs> Patty Griffin, for example. Right. Yeah. I mean, she actually early on in her thing, I arrived at the beta 87 C for her voice, for her voice. And, and we've tried a couple other options and always come back to that. And she knows it. And part of it's just her comfort with its pattern and being able to work it. Um, she, she uses an, an in-ear monitor on one, only in one ear. Um, and all that she gets in that ear is her vocal mic. So she's able to, and, and since she started using that, I've hardly had to touch her voice with a compressor because she'll back up when she sings loud and she'll come in when she sings soft. She works it. That's interesting. I don't, I don't think that's very so, traditional. Um, I would usually tell people to choose one or the other. Why do you think she settled on that? Did you recommend that to her? The, the, the one ear thing? Yeah. Um, 
she she put two in her ear in the first rehearsal and pulled one out in the middle of the first song. She she didn't feel connected to what was going on on the stage around her, right. and she didn't. And and this is my comment too: is I don't like that it move, doesn't move with you. If you walk over to the guitar player and then walk over to the keyboard player, that you're still hearing the same thing. Our my our rider does say we prefer analog boards, you know, and then it lists, you know, Midas, Midas as the, the, the top request. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, and I'll take any Midas. I don't care if it's the little one. Um, I like the preamps. I like that. I, I tend to have to do less with that board than with other boards right. EQ wise. Um, and that comes back to the microphones. It's like, if you get the right microphone or the right pickup preamp, on stage for a guitar if you have that you're needing to do less at the front of house console um but i just like sort of the voodoo of the analog boards versus the digital boards um and the other thing i'll be fairly particular about is the actual on stage monitors um we don't really like the big ones um so anything low profile or smaller 12s versus 15s I don't think there's ever no limitations on the money. Um, at the end of the day, if you spend too much in column A, you don't have enough in column B. There's always some bottom line. Right. And, you know, if column B is your salary or the hotel I'm going to stay in, <laughs> then I'll keep column A to the minimum, you know, and, and live a little better. Is there anything else special that you feel like you're doing that other people should know about? Well, one thing I've noticed in an experience of working with an artist that has fairly avid fans that are they're gonna they're gonna be quiet when she when Patty sings, um, but in situations where it's not necessarily her audience or the audience of the band that I'm working for, what I, one thing I have discovered is that you don't necessarily mix louder to get people's attention. Sometimes you can mix quieter um, because two things will happen. One, the, the audience will police themselves. So the people who do want to hear are going to shush the people who are talking. Okay. And the other thing is if you make it louder, they're just going to talk louder. <laughs> and it just preserves the dynamics to me too because it allows you to get loud. Sure. You have some place to go rather than just, you know, here I am loud. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, especially when it's just a girl up there with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel to me that it should be loud. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah. Well, and your fans, pro- and fans, her fans probably yeah, are too. And it might be prolonging my career. That's right. <laughs> so, You'll hear into your, into your old age. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another thing I, I, I don't see stopping. I mean, I, I think that if anything, as you get older, you know, if, if the physical limitations to getting older become, there, there's ways in this job to keep going. I, I know quite a few people who are in their later 60s are still doing this gig. So. I have been to South by Southwest and I've performed. And um, I guess I want to ask you about it because you've worked at it. And I think it's such a funny place to work at 
because the value in South by Southwest really is the quantity of material and not the quality. What's great about South by Southwest is that you can go from venue to venue because uh, shows only last for 45 minutes and then you go to the next one and it starts on time. I worked as the production manager for South by Southwest from 92 till 99, sort of in its big growth period. So we went and during that time between maybe four or 500 bands to over a thousand. Um, and they're well beyond that now. And this and, year's and, over 1,600 <clears throat> or something, right? Yeah, and that's even just the official showcase bands. Right, and there's a lot of other shows going on. so many more other day parties and shows going on that fragment it. Um, it's a great event. It, it's, and, and, you know, I, I know I've gone up and down on the jaded idea of, like, is it too big or not? It is what it is, and it's going to be what it is going to become. Um, and it's not going to get any smaller, and, and and it is what it is in an amazing way because it's it's the carnival, and it's the place where all the musicians get to see one another that they don't get to see. I ran into two people that I hadn't seen in over 15 years that wow. knew from either the road, you know, other sound engineers, uh, other musicians, and, and just run into them. I didn't know you were going to be here. You know, it's like, oh, I'm working with, you know. Um, yeah, and the timing thing, like you said, when I did work for it, that was the most important thing was it should run on time. It needs to run on time. Um, Which is not normal for concert settings, you know, not necessarily. And so uh, it's a big deal for all the people there who work in the industry and maybe need to see um, specific things and they need it to run on time. Yeah. And, and that was the big challenge in doing production for it was how, how can it possibly run on time when you've got, you know, this 15 piece, you know, African band and transitioning to this 14 piece Brazilian band and a 20 minute changeover, you know? And so, so it was a, it was an adventure to and you basically look at a lot of stage plots and try to, you know, work with the schedulers to, to avoid the, the biggest problems in a technical sense, um, in the scheduling. So, so like a month before the show, two months before the show, as the schedule came together, um, I was able to look at the, the board as it was, you know, it was basically a large piece of metal with a bunch of magnets with mm -hmm. stickers on them and we could move them around. And so I could, I could sort of spot trouble spots from a technical standpoint by getting to know everybody's stage plots. I would look at thousands the thousand stage plots. I wow. developed a database where I could enter in the input list or at least the perspective input list and sort of create flow sheets for that. So mm -hmm. I was able to look at each night and go, you know, oh, here's an issue. You know, this this band has, you know, inordinate amount of inputs. And then and then it would then that would also be at the stage when I was contracting the equipment that would go into these venues. So you could customize and, and try to create at least the the, potentially the best situation for that and and put the right personnel with the situations that needed to be. Um, so, Roy Taylor, you are mixing a Balkan band. Your sound design is at Vortex Theater right now. You are about to go on tour with Amy Lou Harris and then, I guess, later in the summer, uh, again with Patty, Patty Griffin? Um, yeah, that's, we're not sure what that will be at that point. She okay. may be working on a record in between now and then in between her dates with Robert Plant, or if that doesn't happen, then, then in August she'll be making the record. Um, so 
And if people want to look you up online or follow any of your work, is there a good place for that? Um, no. Sound design. Live.